0: Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program at Harvard Law School. Today, staff attorney Hanna Viscara interviews Sarah Light, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at Wharton, about her latest article, The Law of the Corporation as Environmental Law, in the Stanford Law Review. In her article, Professor Light proposes incorporating an environmental priority
1: principle into corporate securities, antitrust, and bankruptcy law. We hope you enjoy the podcast. This is Hanna Viscara with Harvard Law's Environmental and Energy Law Program, and I'm here with Professor Sarah Light, who is Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and she also teaches at University of Pennsylvania's Law School. Before academia, Professor Light served for 10 years as an Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York Civil Division, and four years as the Chief of the Office's Environmental Protection Unit. Her academic research examines issues at the intersection of environmental law, corporate sustainability, and business innovation. In that vein, Sarah recently published a law review article titled The Law of Corporation as Environmental Law in the Stanford Law Review, and that is what she is here to speak with us about today. Sarah, welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So your article argues for understanding certain areas of what I would term business law as fundamental aspects of environmental law, in particular corporate law, securities regulation, antitrust law, and bankruptcy law. I think uh, most environmental lawyers in private practice would probably vigorously agree that these significantly intersect with environmental law. In my prior life as a law firm attorney, uh, corporate law regularly intersected with my work through due diligence on deals or crafting environmental provisions in contracts or arguing over corporate law issues like piercing the corporate veil to determine who was responsible for environmental liabilities. Or we also regularly reviewed environmental information and corporate disclosures to the SEC. So I can certainly support the assertion that these uh, areas of law play a significant role in determining environmental outcomes. Can you tell us a bit more about the premise of this article and what drew you to the subject?
0: Absolutely. So the truth is I have wanted to write this article since coming to Wharton. Being a professor who uh, studies and does research on environmental law, but as a professor at a business school primarily rather than a law school, I have spent a lot of time kind of trying to bridge the gap between legal scholarship and management scholarship understanding what environmental law is, and understanding how business managers and managers within firms think about what their environmental obligations or ethical duties are. And so that means that both in my research and my teaching, I spent a lot of time thinking not just about kind of the traditional canon of public environmental law, statutes like the Clean Air Act or the Clean Water Act or the Superfund Statute, but also thinking about voluntary, in quotation marks, actions that firms and firm managers can take to reduce the negative environmental impact of their actions or to improve the, the quality of the environment. Those voluntary actions are often termed some kind of private environmental governance. The problem, of course, is that... Private voluntary doesn't really exist when we're thinking about a creature like a corporation that is a creature of the law, right? Mm -hmm. Corporations don't exist but for the fact that they have been created under the law. And so, background legal rules, um, the legal environment in which firms operate, sets the boundaries of what firm managers are permitted to do, what they're prohibited from doing, what they have incentives to do or not to do. And so, um, when I think about sort of environmental law as it is often, though not always, but often taught in law schools, we think about environmental laws, the environmental canon, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. Um, and so the kind of assumption is that firms um, firms, and markets operate in one sphere, and it is the goal of Congress and the EPA through public environmental law and regulation to um, address negative externalities associated with market production, but firms' goals to simply maximize their value within the marketplace and promote efficient competition. So my article kind of questions this division of labor between law that governs firms and markets and traditional canonical environmental law that governs the negative externalities of not only behavior by corporations, but by many actors within society, and basically says that what we need to do is be thinking about all of these things together. Because firm managers make decisions that have profound environmental consequences long before pollution comes out of a pipe or a smokestack as an externality that meets a threshold under traditional public environmental law.
1: And in doing so, in, in talking about how these frameworks come together, these different areas of law, you draw four primary conclusions, as I understood it in the article. and I'm going to going to tick them off real quick, and then we can, we can talk about them in a bit more detail. Uh, so the first was that this unified approach creates a framework for understanding what influences firms' environmental decision-making, and you sort of already set that up a bit and alluded to how the, how the, the, the different areas of law influence uh, corporations' actions. Second being that the influence of these four fields of business law or corporate law can and should be made stronger, and you in your article propose an environmental priority principle in order to do this. Third, that corporate and business law can fill gaps that traditional environmental law has not adequately addressed. And then that the federal regulatory environment right now since January 2017 makes a pluralistic understanding of environmental law more urgent. So, Talking about each of these, these components, tell me what you, uh, do you have, what you mean by this unified, holistic approach, creating a framework for understanding firms' environmental decision-making internally.
0: So what I mean by unified approach, in, in the sort of introductory remarks that you gave introducing the article, you made clear that, as I talk about in my article, I'm focusing here on four specific fields, corporate law, state corporate law. Um, antitrust law, securities regulation, and bankruptcy law. And so by a unified approach, what I mean is we shouldn't just be thinking about corporate law, or we shouldn't just be thinking about securities regulation. We need to be thinking about all of these different fields of law that govern firms and markets together. So first, by looking at all of these fields together, um, the article develops a kind of analytical taxonomy of five primary ways in which these fields of business or corporate law intersect with environmental values and goals. There are mandates, there are prohibitions, there are safe harbors, there are incentives, and there are disincentives. So the article kind of talks about each of these five primary forms of interaction and gives examples of each. This Second, and, and so part of it is simply by looking at multiple fields, you can see, oh, wait a minute, um, the SEC rules about environmental disclosures have a similar effect to this provision in the antitrust law um, or similar to state benefit corporations in these key ways. So I think that analytically, I think it's very useful to look at these as kind of a uh, holistic phenomena. Mm-hmm. Second, I think that the unified approach is really important because you can imagine a scenario and there are many articles focusing on a single area of one of these fields and saying something like, what we need is stronger um, environmental disclosure provisions in securities regulation. And that's great. And that may be an important aspect of focusing firm manager attention on the environmental implications of their actions. However... My argument is if we don't also think about the kind of competing levers in state corporate law or antitrust law or bankruptcy law, that single change in securities regulation might not be enough to get the firm where it wants to go, right? So you might Mm -hmm. have focused a firm manager's attention on the fact that it needs to reduce the environmental impacts of its, you know, line of detergents for example, but if antitrust law is going to um, provide disincentives for that firm to work with other firms in the industry or an industry association to come up with some kind of voluntary environmental standards or codes for the environmental qualities of detergent, then the SEC change, the change in the FCC regulations may simply not be enough. Right. It might be necessary, but not sufficient.
1: Right. And in some, in some instances, they could even work at cross-purposes.
0: Yes, absolutely. They can certainly work at cross-purposes. So I think my, you know, bigger and all-encompassing point is we need to look at all of these levers together. Um, the second issue relates to the environmental priority principle. Right. Um, so what I argue is that these fields of law already are environmental law. They already are affecting the environmental decision-making of firms. Um, but we should view them in a way that potentially makes them stronger. And so if one thinks about a kind of continuum on which the, different, the five different forms of um, interaction exist, so I gave the forms before, but if you were going to place them on a continuum, a spectrum from left to right, with the most conflict first and the most confluence last, you would say, well, prohibition, that's the greatest degree of conflict. You're prohibited from taking an environmentally positive action. Disincentives. then you're in the neutral zone with safe harbors. And then as you move toward confluence, you have something that's an incentive. And then finally a mandate. So the idea behind the environmental uh, priority principle is that, it's, it, that these fields of law should be interpreted in ways that move you from the left to the right along that spectrum. So from prohibitions, perhaps to safe harbors, from safe harbors to incentives, from incentives to mandates, um, to, to make it possible and provide incentives for and ultimately potentially to make it mandatory that firm managers take environmental values and priorities into account.
1: And in the process of doing that, you, you know we talked a little bit about traditional environmental law, the, the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Superfund statutes having gaps, and that this being a way to fill some of those gaps. Can you speak a little bit about some of the specific gaps you see this approach to what we consider environmental law and how we think about the levers that allow us to make environmental progress? you know, looking to different areas of corporate law uh, and and how they could potentially fill specific gaps that you have in mind?
0: Absolutely. So um, environmental law, the traditional kind of canonical statutes have been largely very successful. The air is cleaner, the water is cleaner. We have much more effective plans in place for dealing with hazardous waste, transportation, storage, disposal. So traditional environmental laws have been very effective. What they have been less effective at dealing with, um, have been issues of cumulative harm. And what I mean by issues of cumulative harm might be issues like global climate change or deforestation or overfishing or agricultural runoff and non-point source water pollution. These are actions where there aren't necessarily a concentrated number of firms or polluters um, with big smokestacks and pipes whose effluent or whose emissions exceed a particular high threshold, right? The Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, there are thresholds in these statutes that that we care about. And if you're on the wrong side of the threshold, then there's some kind of control in place. But all of us are contributing to global climate change, and we might not, our actions may simply not meet these big thresholds. And so by focusing on the law that governs the corporation as well as markets, antitrust and you know, securities regulation, um, the idea is that you're going inside the firm to essentially alter the incentives that firm managers have when they're thinking about, well, should we simply dump X, or do we need to be more careful about how we are dealing with everything from global climate emissions to, um, to non-point source uh, releases of water to whether we're going to use virgin materials or recycled materials. So the idea is that if you change the internal code within the firm, then that's going to have implications for what the firm does to the environment. So that's how I think that the gaps can be filled. It, it's basically saying we don't need big hammers. We need small adjustments. Mm-hmm. And those small adjustments can only come by kind of tweaking the internal decision-making of firms.
1: And. Uh... You know, We've seen companies prompted by sustained investor interest or civil society efforts that do seem to be taking environmental and especially these larger, more uh, spread risks of climate change and climate concerns more seriously right now. And we even see energy companies touting their efforts on climate change through dedicated reports or additional hard data that they're they're using to uh, back that up and investment in new technology. Do you see the, or do you envision these companies espousing a promise to adhere to an environmental priority principle even absent a regulatory obligation to do so, or maybe not prior to us having fully implemented or integrated that principle into the existing law? Do you think that's possible, I guess?
0: Yes, so I do think that that's possible. So many corporations have adopted principles, plans, targets to address their environmental externalities that are not required by law. They do so for a number of reasons. In some cases, it's because it makes business sense and it may cut costs or reduce waste. In other cases, it may be for uh, reputational benefit. It may be because investors are pushing for it. It may be, be because... Customers care about environmental values. The business judgment rule, which is part of state corporate law, essentially creates a safe harbor that gives managers discretion to take actions that they believe are in the long run interest of the firm. Um, without fear that courts, if they were to get sued, that courts would second-guess their judgment as long as there's no kind of, uh, you know, insider dealing, as long as they're acting in good faith. And so that safe harbor, which is neither confluence nor conflict, it's just a space of protection for their discretion, certainly enables corporations to take environmental values into account. Slightly stronger on the continuum would be something like the state benefit corporation laws, where a firm can affirmatively choose to incorporate or reincorporate as a benefit corporation, in which case it basically designates um, a specific benefit that could be an environmental benefit, it could be a social benefit, as well as needing to consider general benefit of its uh, of its operations with respect to society and the environment alongside profit and so there's a reputational benefit that a firm gets by incorporating as a benefit corporation um, and so that might even be kind of one step further right Patagonia mm-hmm. is the example of the the benefit corporation that um, obviously takes environmental and social values deeply into account
1: and I think they just uh, hired an environmental advocate as well
0: They may have Mm indeed, absolutely. Uh, Was
1: uh, the former EPAGC. So it'll be interesting to see what that does.
0: (laughs) Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, they're currently litigating issues related to the efforts by the administration to shrink national Mm -hmm. monuments. And so, you know, we will see where that goes. But, so yes, the answer is I think that there's a lot of room for discretion right now. But I would like to suggest that there are some areas in which managers don't have discretion, where it would be great even if we don't mandate that they consider environmental values, that we at least move them from a prohibition to an area where they have Mm -hmm. discretion to take the environment into account, and that it would be a good thing to move from a world where there's discretion for managers can choose to a world in which there are greater incentives to take environmental values into account.
1: And in in our current environment, I mean, we all have witnessed a pretty sharp turn in the federal government's approach to environmental regulation since Donald Trump's election. And you know, here at, at Harvard Law's Environmental and Energy Law Program, we've been closely tracking the re- regulatory rollback efforts of this administration. I think we have somewhere around 60 pages on our, our website's regulatory rollback tracker now covering an even larger number of individual actions attempting to undo environmental pre- protections in some way. So thinking about moving this Environmental priority principle forward in a more formal uh, regulatory way. How do you see? Where do you see opportunity to try to adopt this? Maybe at the state or local level, in some way, to help push companies and actions across the board further up this chain, for further from the left to the right, and how they they perceive these issues.
0: Right. So that is a great question. So at the moment, I think aspects of this approach um, are aspirational, right? I Mm -hmm. think to myself, wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't it have been good if prior to the current deregulatory efforts, there had been um, a greater fragmentation of regulatory responsibility beyond the core and canonical environmental statutes largely enforced by the EPA into other institutions in society so that there could be some greater degree of insulation from deregulatory action. Um, it's At this point, when one thinks about the mechanisms by which these um, the environmental priority principle could be implemented, one needs to actually disaggregate the fields again because the fields are they are enforced by different regulators at different levels of government. So obviously, if we're thinking about securities regulation and antitrust, we're talking about the federal government, we are talking about the SEC and the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. It is very unlikely that in the current uh political climate that an environmental priority principle would be put into place at the federal level in those institutions. Um, however, when we're thinking about something like corporate law, or the, you know, including the business judgment rule or benefit corporation statutes, we're talking about the states. And there has clearly been some degree of pushback by the states against the deregulatory approach, and there has been a lot of experimentation by states um, in, uh, in the environmental arena in general. So I think that the area where it would be really interesting and exciting to see greater experimentation would be, in the states with respect to state corporate law and state benefit
1: corporation law. I, I do think there's a lot of interest right now in looking out beyond the federal government for, for efforts across the board when it comes to environmental uh, uh, protection and forward thinking action on climate. And um, so this is an interesting way of looking at new areas in which states or, or different levels of government can can have an impact for sure. I want to just ask you whether there's anything else you'd like to highlight from your piece that we haven't touched on yet. Um, we'll, of course, make sure to include a link to the piece on our website. Um, but is there any you know burning burning aspect of it that we we haven't gotten to that you think we should mention?
0: Honestly, I actually think that your questions have been very comprehensive, and um, so no, there's nothing that I would uh, that I would add to the account. Um, beyond what we have discussed.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Sarah, and I look forward to hopefully seeing this concept incorporated into uh, in, into various areas of law uh, in the near and long-term future <laughs> and being a part of helping make that happen.
0: Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to have this conversation with you.